I'm going to attempt to maybe keep this to uh, one subject. So uh, I guess today what I'd like to talk about in a roundabout way, as usual, it's context, meaning, and all that jazz, but I'd love to talk about the self, Atma Yoga, the nature of self, from both a Theravadan, because that's where, if you've been following, that's where I'm currently flowing from, that's where I'm getting my mojo. So I want to talk about Alaya Vijnana, which is the storehouse consciousness, this place where we supposedly keep putting these seeds, these bija of karma. So you make a choice, I prefer red over blue. That becomes your bija, that becomes what you prefer, this attachment and over time, over an entire lifetime, and arguably by some, over multiple lifetimes, um, it becomes what we attach to as self. Okay, so maybe... I can make it simpler. I just want to maybe read something that I wrote um, as it relates to this. And we'll just leave it at that. It's just me discussing um, so my views uh, when it comes to these issues, right? So I was asked if I felt myself to be an atheist. Example, uh, whether I think the Pali Canon and Buddhism are filled with superstition. So I made a joke to start, hopefully it's understood as such, is that you mispronounced metaphor. <laughs> Meaning, um, there's a lot of what some people characterize as superstition. I would consider it either as metaphor or simply ego having gotten in the way. Because I go on and say uh, that what we consider to be canon, the Pali Canon, remember canon means it is the stuff that we're getting our truth from, it was written 400 years after the speaker, so I take it with a grain of salt. Also recently had a teacher, a Theravadan practitioner and teacher, well-respected, um, who said that the tradition was lost and it was reborn, rebirthed again in the modern year, like in Burma and Thailand. I always subscribe to the idea that a gentleman like Christmas Humphreys explained that the Theravadans felt that the lay people... Uh, wouldn't be able to achieve the same level of jhana or liberation, awareness. So they taught them a stripped-down, slimmed-down version, just to give them the calm and the focus necessary to carry out their regular lives. I argue something different. I personally think that, yeah, I agree it was lost, because if you go back to the yoga, the uh, the, the Vedanta, um, it was taught to the lay and the uh, the monastics, and I argue, I've said this before, that the Vinaya, the, the monastic rules themselves, um, aren't for, for people in a monastery. They're for everybody. But things like sitting on the mat or going into a monastery, or as you'll read over and over again, what's a great place to practice your meditation. It's got to be a quiet place and all this jazz. Well, those are for the ones that have to work extra hard. If you want to talk about, say, some like your Pacheka Buddhas and your Shramanas, who are able to simply apply the teachings. What is it? Shamatha, calmness, and insight, Vipassana. We use those to realize the true nature of everything. What do you mean? Dependent origination. Nothing exists as we see it, as it appears, certainly not to us. Nothing is permanent, and the combination of those two make them empty absolute emptiness means anything we try to grasp to is already gone or it's not what we're even thinking. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is 
uh, I misunderstood that the tradition was being taught separate. Um, but no, in fact, what I've come to realize is the tradition is no longer being taught. And I'm going to get to what I mean by that. So Theravadan teacher said that all of these traditions were reborn. And he's not wrong because here I'm thinking, well, we brought the, uh, the meditation tradition over uh, when they colonized. But in, in reality, the tradition itself had been left um, to stagnate. I mean, uh, we have writings about Bodhidharma, whether you believe he existed or not. Uh, that he brought the Dharma back into China and other areas more than once. And each time that he came back, he found them stagnating. That's why we have the third fetter of being attached to rites and rituals and ceremony, because that's not the the goal here. And as what I usually use as an example would be Iddi or Siddhi, which is a term in Pali and Sanskrit, which means powers. Uh, Iddi Padda is what they usually would call extraordinary powers. And I separate the two because Iddi to me is extraordinary powers in the idea of uh, concentration or the ability to remain calm in no matter what the situation. That's the upeka sati. That's being able to reside in mindfulness and equanimity, no longer having to work at it. The same idea of um, the first jhana, of being able to reside in following your breath. The practice is not following your breath. As I recently heard another Theravadan practitioner who comes from this ridiculous tradition of walking through walls, belief in walking through walls, my apologies, who says that it's to follow the breath and you follow your breath and as if just following your breath is where you're going to get your enlightenment. Absolutely not. They are the ones causing the harm. So what Christmas Humphreys attributed to the Theravadans in the East I actually attribute to the Theravadins, the Vipassana movement in the West. So rather than teach people something as simple as, no, you're using your breath as your point of concentration. You are not going to achieve liberation or enlightenment by following your breath. It's to follow your breath in and out. It's literally turning into Wim Hof here, thinking that this is the practice. No, and this is what I'm getting at, right? This, this absolute confusion or worse. But I'll go further. I'll say Buddha in the Pali states that Iddi, Siddhi, these extraordinary powers that are abhorrent and even to want such powers is wrong. Right? But then you'll hear another Theravadin who will go and quote the Abhidharma. Right? The Abhidharma is not considered canon unless it's making their point and will point to one reference that claims that these extraordinary powers should not be used in the presence of lay people. Again, Many centuries after the death of the Buddha, we have what's attributed to him directly stating, no, these powers are ridiculous. Then there's another reference who says, well, just don't show anyone. I'm sorry. Both of those tell me it's ridiculous. So for me, is that my choice to consider it supernatural or, or is that in uh, the individuals that wrote it, marked it down, or even interpreting it, translating it, or is it just simple bias? Right? Or as I alluded to before, how about the entire Vipassana movement in the West being based essentially on one lady? Her name is Dipama. You can look her up. It's from Burma. She was brought over here because there were some Westerners who went over were thoroughly impressed by her. But what were they thoroughly impressed by? Her commitment 
and um, absolute belief in these supernatural powers that she possessed, that she could walk through walls and fly. Ridiculous that anyone would believe this. Yet they all believe it. Sharon Saltzman, uh, Gil Frontal, um, Jack Corman, uh, Tara Brock. She's she's Jack Corman's little uh, uh, doppelganger, but um, I can't remember. There's a, a number of them. And I mean, even look at some of them. For example, Gil Frontal is using the Insight Meditation Center, talking about going back to prehistoric Buddhism. I mean... Who needs to go back that far when the entire tradition itself was lost? Why don't we just find what works and teach that? Why has it gotten so weird? Because in no small part, we got something like that spirit rock that's attached to that insight meditation center that was attached to this Vipassana movement, and it was just a sex cult, just like Shambhala or, I don't know, I could give you a half dozen others, Buddhists that are actually a sex cult. But I'll go on further and talk about this missing meaning, right? All of these people who believe in hallucinations, when the entire teachings, it's all this. It's all hallucinations, right? But those of us who do not believe in these hallucinations, in those specific hallucinations, we're the ones who lack faith. (laughs) I laugh because... That's delusion. That's not faith. Or as Ajahn Brahm states, that the Alaya Vijnana is problematic. That's the Alaya Vijnana. That's that storehouse uh, consciousness. That's the eighth consciousness in Yogacara where we develop these preferences, these latent impressions where these seeds of karma uh, reside. And they result in this attachment to self or this belief of independence and all this jazz. But Ajahn Brahm states it's problematic. Right? And commonly a Theravadin will talk about uh, your karma is uh, you make your choice based on what your previous choice was. Now, I argue that's problematic because I will easily find within Theravadin reference to uh, Bhavanga Sota. Bhavanga Sota being... Uh, this transitional mind. The Tibetans would call this the, the, the bardo. So the between states. In this case, particularly between life and death. So it's the energies you attach to in life that you attach to in these between states, right? Between life and death, and again, between death and birth. But they don't just appear, do they? I mean, are we going to say that all of these energies we attach to in life, boom, all of a sudden just appear, right? So this bhavanga Sota, or this Bhavanga, this this storehouse, didn't exist throughout our life. And and they will attribute the Alaya Vijnana to be the Tathagatagarbha, or Buddha nature. Once again, that is problematic, because the Alaya Vijnana, if it's this storehouse of, of latent impressions, or this storehouse of the bijas, these karmic seeds, or just plain and simple, the energy you attach to in life, which is going to predetermine what you might attach to in these between states. If that was built by your choices, your karma, your actions, then how could it be Buddha nature, right? Again, Tathagatagarbha, uh, Buddha nature, the perfection state, 
right? Again, I know I keep going back to Yogacar, but again, these three states, the third being the perfection state. The first being ignorance or the illusory uh, state or consciousness, right? When you don't understand the truth. Second being the dependent origination state or uh, when you start to realize these truths. Again, that's why I reference faith, Shraddha. You need to have faith and commitment in uh, your lack of understanding and perception up until the point when you can actually perceive it for yourself. But until then, but we're going to, in spite of all these simple truths, we're going to say that the Alaya Vijnana, which is supposed to be a storehouse of all of our latent impressions, so it means essentially the key to what we attach to and call the self, consciousness. My consciousness. That is not the Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata Garbha is supposed to be Buddha nature. And with a little bit of research, I found out that absolutely, there's the Amala Vijnana, which is defined as this perfection state. So the Tathagata Garbha, or Buddha nature, is not the Alaya Vijnana. It, if anything, is the Amala Vijnana. Leaving, once again, the Alaya Vijnana for us to go back and go, well, wait a minute here. Nothing is permanent, obviously, right? Because those impressions are moment to moment. So yes, your previous choice does jade your next choice, but so did the choice before that and the choice before that. So that's why I say we do not jade our choices based on the previous choice, but we create these karmic seeds that blossom into our reactions, the storehouse. Further, I was recently... uh, well, another Theravadan practitioner made it infinitely clear to me. Theravadan considered an entry-level practice with Mahayana, the more advanced. Think of Theravadan as work up to the fourth jhana, equanimity and mindfulness, upekasati. The first fetter being the self, the nature of self, the first fetter or barrier to stream entry, sotapanna, that's why we look at Bhavanga Sota or Bhavanga Chitta. Ajahn Brahm will claim this is simply the consciousness at transition. As I said, the birth and death state. Yet, it only appears at these points. I think there is a massive confusion made worse possibly by egos. The very thing we are obligated to overcome with dependent origination and emptiness. Right? You can use those in the Theravadan approach, not just in the Tantric approach. But if you cannot use those, and you need additional practices, there's where the Mahayana might come in. Further investigation, like the Chod practice, which is wholly an ego insight practice. Right? So for me, I am not an atheist. Any absolutes require absolute insight, which I have little. So... Right? The first fetter to Sotapanna, to stream entry, is the fetter of the self, or the belief in the self, or attachment to the self, or the nature of self. Again, I like Vasubandhu on this, when he says the self is upakara, that which operates based on what is near about. Like the birth and death of chitta at every contact. It does seem counter to impermanence, but the attachment is produced and maintained in the moment of contact, and without attachment, again, as I say, is born and dies away.
So I again point to upakara. Right? Let's see here. And I say, the self is not a thing. It is upakara. And one of the definitions, practice, performance, art, conduct, management, procedure, a process, as modern science calls it, uh, calls the self or consciousness, phenomenology. Phenomenology from the Greek, phenomenon, that which appears, and logos, study. It's the philosophical study of the structures of experience of the self. And I'll use another definition of upakara, an external show or form. So, that which appears is another form of an external show or form. So, once again, the confusion lies in the fact that they're all saying the same thing, but they're just picking little tidbits out of this or out of that um, so they can be a little bit different, which is the epitome of ego. I mean, I love how so many of these practitioners, teachers, gurus, sadhus will claim, oh, you know, we don't want anything. But of course, there'll always be a link to dana. So you can send them. This is freely given as a thanks. But shouldn't you be providing some sufficiency? It should be reciprocity. It, I argue, dana is also a problem, right? Because if I'm supposed to give you something, that's where the failure begins. That's not the transaction that we're supposed to conduct. You're supposed to exchange with me. You're supposed to teach me, guide me, help me understand. Therefore, I can give you something in return. Donna absolutely does kind of give this impression that it's a one-way transaction. And arguably, it commonly is. So why don't we get out of that quagmire and let's start working together and seeing if we can put this uh, to bed, right? Like the Vedantins say, put yourself to bed and the self just doesn't exist because it doesn't go away. It's not a not-self. It's you're no longer attaching to what you label as the self. And you become one with what they call Brahman nature. So unlike the Theravadin, who used this universal equanimity, which to me seems missing in Theravadin, you'll get to the fourth jhana, where you're resident in equanimity and mindfulness, yet we don't talk about the barrier to stream entry is this nature of self. And this Theravadin will talk about these inner uh, yogas, which I've covered, but he'll also talk about contemplative, uh, contemplative, that's a mouthful, contemplative practices from the Christians, for example. I argue you can see the same in the, many of the other traditions. But he'll talk about the Holy Spirit, when to me, I was shocked to hear that, because why would you not talk about Brahman nature? In fact, I have argued this before, that the Brahman nature is what's missing from Buddhism itself. You can't tell people that, hey, we're all one, and yet nothing's permanent. So how can we all be one? I mean, this universality of oneness has to be impermanent. It's not, because it flows, and that's the idea. I'm just trying to be facetious here. But the idea is, 
I would never go to the Holy Spirit when we talk about Brahma Viharas. And they will translate it. Technically, that's the temple of God, Brahma Vihara. But it's commonly translated as, um, what did I say earlier this morning? Um, uh, yes, sorry. So many translations for Brahma Vihara. I mean, abodes of Brahma, temple of the gods, um, Divine abodes is what I was getting at. So if we're going to translate divine, uh, Brahma Vihara is the divine abodes, right? Again, this is loving kindness, benevolence, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. And why it's important is they are how you eliminate the opposites of attachment and aversion and ignorance and delusion. Negative energies are opposed by these positive energies. But when we will call the Brahma Viharas the divine abodes, I don't understand why anyone would go to the Holy Spirit when for me it's 100% the Vedanta uh, Brahma Vihara. What am I getting at? Well, Vedanta states, and arguably you'll get the same idea when you look at the Bardo Thudul, which is one of these temas that were lost and found in the tantric tradition. The Bardos of sleep will state that you become one with, like yourself just melts away and disappears, doesn't exist, right? So it is in Buddhism, but much more clearly um, taught in the Vedantic tradition. So what they say is in no uncertain term, when you go to sleep, you stop attaching to the self. Therefore, there is no self. You are at one with Brahman nature. So that's why I would never say the Holy Ghost, the idea, the Holy Spirit, apologies, the Holy Spirit, it is this, this mystical, magical energy that infuses all of us. If we're supposed to feel special and lucky to have been born a human, it's that idea, that, that uh, Holy Spirit. But for me, it's the Brahman nature. I don't have to think in the, in the Hindu sense of Brahman up in the sky. For me... It's the idea, and Vedanta will say this exactly, is that Brahman nature is that energy that infuses everything. It's not just you and me and Dharma. It is the space in between as well. Right? So that, for me, is what's missing. The four divine abodes uh, kind of same as the uh, Bhavanga Sota and... Uh, I mean, I actually skipped a couple of other words that I commonly talk about as well. Um, let's see, where are we here? Yeah, Kamachando, I talk about quite a bit. Uh, Kama is something desirous. Chando is what she attached to. We usually translate it as sexual um, depravity or essential attachment, I mean, when it is anything. And I even had a discussion recently with a gentleman who kind of doesn't understand it, I guess, in the idea of, you know, some karma is better than others and this is good and that, and I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I was just going to edit out that last little bit, but I mean, if anyone makes it to this point, you probably understand what I'm getting at. Um, but yeah, so a couple other words that I wanted to put in was, like I said, the Eliya Vijnana. Um, it's not really a translation that becomes an issue, but when they attribute the Eliya Vijnana to being maybe Tathagata Garba when it's actually obviously not, 
Sampajana is very important uh, for me uh, because I just don't understand why it never gets discussed. Right? We'll talk about Anapanasati. And what is that? You're following your breath. Like I said earlier, it's not the breath that's giving you the liberation. It's focusing on the breath, calming the mind, and all of these attachments, these you know, volitions that come up, these feelings, these anything. Just calming it. So sati, mindfulness, being mindful of this, you know, nature of self and what's right as far as morality and correct action. Right? Being mindful of that. But most important is sampajana, which is, are you continuing to be properly mindful? Are you just pretending to be mindful, but you're really thinking about, you know, lunch? Same as... uh well, honestly, there's a dozen other words. So we'll leave it at that. Um, I just thought I might share, uh, for me, some major insights into the practice. Right. So for me, the Alaya Vijnana, very important, uh, being a yogacara, and I never understood why it fit so much for me because it made perfect sense. From a very early age, dependent origination was not something I really struggled to understand. Same as emptiness, because I understood what they meant by it. I found out recently because my studies led me to French again um, because the uh, a few of these terms have not been written about uh, in English. They've been translated from the Sanskrit into French or German, uh, but I've yet to find uh, something. Like I found a lot on the Eliavijnana, not a lot, but I mean maybe a half dozen to a dozen different books or uh, scientific papers research papers. Um, I've found very little on Kamachando as far as proper meaning, but Sampajana, mm, even less so. Um, but some of these terms, uh, like uh, um, yeah, like a, a mala vijnana, only found in French and German so far. Uh, and it's not a surprise now. If we think about, we're not talking about an unbroken stream of scholars studying this and teaching this. What we're talking about is a very sporadic little, I mean, mess. I mean, we're not looking at a, a strong flowing stream here. I think more or less we're looking at a muddy puddle being rained in, right? So every once in a while we're getting some some headway, but for the most part, we seem to be treading a lot of muddy water. <laughs> 